You know, I, I think there is a lot of power in um, being engaged locally, you know, in local communities, um, linking up with environmental, uh, environmental justice, you know, climate justice and conservation organizations that are taking actions to address uh, the climate crisis is really important. Welcome back to Amplifier in the first episode of season three. We are Lauren Ballatin and Hallie Bradshaw, and this season we are focusing on all things COP26. This year's COP, or the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, is happening October 31st through November 12th in Glasgow, Scotland. In the following episodes, we are going to take a deep dive into some of the biggest conversations planned for Scotland, including corporate sustainability, agriculture, and indigenous people's rights. On today's episode, we wanted to catch up on all that has happened since our first season, as well as check in with professor and community activist Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks about what is to come at COP26. So let's get started. A lot has happened since we first kicked off Amplifier at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now project that former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected President of the United States. He is President-elect. Just hours into the presidency and already out of work, Joe Biden spent part of Wednesday afternoon at the White House signing a series of executive orders aimed at undoing part of Donald Trump's legacy. Another order Biden signed the return of the United States in the Paris Climate Agreement. I will increase the ambition of our domestic climate targets and put our economy in a path to net zero emissions by 2050. And the United States will lead the world in the fight against climate change. Four years after then-President Donald Trump announced that he would withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement, President Biden signed an executive order to officially rejoin the agreement. Originally adopted in 2015 at COP21, the Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change that calls for nations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, almost six years later, the United States is back in the climate conversation. A few months after signing his executive order, President Biden announced a renewed commitment for the United States in mitigating climate change, pledging that the U.S. would work to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030. Given that the U.S. is one of the top three greenhouse gas emitters in the world, this pledge could have huge effects on climate negotiations. Meanwhile, other countries have continued to drive climate action on a global level. Over the summer of 2021, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, hosted intersessional meetings in a virtual format for its two subsidiary bodies, the Subsidiary Body for Scientific and Technological Advice and the Subsidiary Body for Implementation. These intersessions are held every year in preparation for the COP, and it gives parties the opportunity to discuss provisional agenda items and engage in informal consultations. During the 80-plus sessions that took place this year, 
parties considered a range of issues and strategies, but all reached an understanding that there's still significant work needed to reach full agreements at COP26. Most recently, the IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, published its sixth assessment report for Working Group 1. The IPCC is the United Nations body that provides policymakers with evidence of climate change, scientific assessments on climate risks, and information on possible mitigation and adaptation strategies. The sixth assessment report provides evidence that some impacts of climate change are already irreversible. Currently, there are enough greenhouse gases that the planet will continue to warm even if humans reduce emissions. However, if the world acts quickly, there's still time to prevent further harm. Reaching net zero emissions could limit warming to under 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100 and meet the targets of the Paris Agreement. The evidence in this report will be a key focal point for the discussions that are going to take place at COP26. Last year, COP26 was postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, leaving the world questioning whether this would disrupt momentum towards the goals of the Paris Agreement. With the pandemic uncontrolled in many parts of the world, it was uncertain whether COP26 would again be delayed in 2021. However, Alok Sharma, the president of COP26, confirmed in May that the United Kingdom would host negotiations in person and would strongly encourage vaccines. Now we are a little less than one month out from the start of COP26 in Glasgow, and Alok Sharma's decision has continued to be controversial as the world grapples with the ongoing pandemic. With COP26 taking place at a global scale, it can be difficult to understand how these negotiations are affecting our local communities. How exactly does an international conference in Scotland become a movement for activists in Atlanta? Today, we're very excited to be speaking with Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks as she connects the worlds of international negotiations at COP26 and her own work with grassroots activism. Thank you, Nataki, for joining us today, and we're very excited to be speaking with you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Nataki Osborne-Jelks. I am an assistant professor in the Environmental and Health Sciences Program at Spelman College. I'm also co-founder of the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, otherwise known as WAWA, which is a community-based environmental justice organization that works to grow a cleaner, greener, healthier, and more sustainable West Atlanta. As we were talking about a little bit earlier, there's this big climate COP conference that's coming up. And with all the different things that you're working on and the work you do in Atlanta, what is your take on these climate agreements and particularly the Paris Agreement? Have you interacted with that? And what does that look like for you? So the Paris Agreement was, um, you know, very significant uh, in terms of it being this, you know, international um, treaty, uh, enforceable treaty or agreement uh, in which she had about 196 nations who who signed on to that. The United States at that time was one of those signatories. Um, and so that was, I guess, the best option that we had um, to take some collective action uh, with other countries and for the United States to serve as the leader in those talks, in those negotiations, um, to make a commitment to be very intentional about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so that was very important. As many of us are aware, once we changed presidential administrations, um, former President Trump, you know, sort of said on day one, you know, I think maybe right behind, um, you know, trying
trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, one of the top agenda items that he had was to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. So now kind of in this post-Trump presidential era, um, we now have the the upcoming um you know, COP26 uh, Conference of the Parties, uh, you know, UN Climate climate uh, climate Change Conference happening um, in, I guess, October through November of this year. Um, you know, many people are seeing this as sort of the best sort of next step um, to, to make sure that we are um, collectively working with other nations to take bold action um, to limit climate change and to be very um, specific and intentional about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I also see this as a time, especially in in the context of the United States and some of what uh, President Biden's administration is working to do. I see this as now an opportunity to not only um, just focus on the reduction of greenhouse gases um, in a general sense, but to also pay specific attention to uh, communities who've been made to be most vulnerable to climate change um, and to, you know, really take a look at the disproportionate impacts on low income and communities of color really across the world um, and to ensure that as we're making uh, or taking steps and making, you know, plans and implementing actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that it's not done in a way in which we reduce overall emissions, but then you still have some hot spots that are disproportionately impacting communities who are already vulnerable, who are already at risk, who are already disproportionately impacted. On a more local scale, we were wondering if you could just describe some of the ways these international climate change negotiations are impacting your work as um, a professor and also doing nonprofit work and even just in your own life in general. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. A lot of times we talk about, you know, climate change as being one of these issues that has impacts from the local level all the way up to the global level. Um, we also talk a lot about thinking globally and acting locally, you know, with respect to, you know, things happening in local communities and in places like Atlanta, we definitely um, are experiencing um, you know, some of the impacts of climate change as we look at those models about what is expected to happen in Atlanta between now and the year 2050, we see an increase in intensity uh, in a number of climate hazards, um, you know, uh, including kind of increased precipitation, increased heat, um, and, and some other ones that are uh, that are escaping me right now. But, you know, they're about a list of, you know, five or so hazards that we expect to, to increase, you know, here in the city. And so um, that impacts me and my work as a professor um, because, you know, we are studying this phenomenon that is unfolding, you know, really before our eyes. And so there is an opportunity for students to see some of those real impacts. Um, just, just last week, um, I worked with the um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, as well as the Partnership for Southern Equity to engage my students um, or a set of my students in uh, work on mapping climate vulnerability. Um, so using national level data sets and then pulling, um, you know, extracting from those national data sets, you know, locally relevant data about um, communities, you know, in the Atlanta region that are most vulnerable to climate change. Unfortunately, we have, um, 
you know, things happening right now in the present, you know, with respect to uh, climate change. We're seeing the effects, we're seeing the impacts on communities that are most vulnerable. And, you know, students, you know, have really a ripe opportunity to be able to study this, but not only study it, um, but to um, come up with their own recommendations uh, with respect to solutions to be innovative. And so as we think about, you know, what's going to be happening at the COP26 conference, um, you know, there really is this opportunity for students to track and to follow what's happening in those discussions, um, what's happening in terms of the recommendations, you know, and declarations that are being made. And we can, you know, try to put that in a local context. And I guess I would just, you know, say that much of this also applies to, you know, the local nonprofit work and community-based work that I do, um, because we're, we're not just talking about this phenomenon that is happening in some other place. Um, yes, it's happening across the world. Yes, there are some parts of the world that are suffering um, more so than we um, might see some of the effects locally, but there is, you know, there are very tangible effects happening locally. And so students, you know, are engaged in studying this. Local communities are engaged in taking action, uh, even in some cases in partnership with local academic institutions. And so what is happening, you know, at this global scale has um, great impact on uh, what we are seeing, feeling, experiencing, and working to address here locally. As you said, you know, climate's this big global issue and these negotiations are also taking place at the international level. Could you talk a little bit more about why some person on the, the street in Atlanta, you know, some, some random person, why they should care about COP or, or why they shouldn't if you don't think that it's as applicable? Well, I think everybody should care about these negotiations and discussions that are happening at the global scale, um, we should definitely be, you know, we should be tuned into what's happening, um, you know, where there is agreement and alignment, you know, across a broad sector of, um, of, of um, countries. Um, but we should also be very clued into um, the role that the United States is playing, you know, in these conversations, in these dialogues, um, the leadership that we are displaying. Um, and, you know, we're at a very important moment at which that leadership, you know, happening um, that we're seeing at the national level that is making its way into these international, you know, agreements uh, and conversations and dialogues and, and this COP conference, this is that same leadership that uh, continually needs to be influenced by what we're seeing and experiencing on the ground. And so if we are paying attention to, you know, this conference, uh, and what's coming out of it, then, you know, there is that opportunity for us to continue to engage locally all the way, you know, up the chain, if you will, um, to make sure that we are sharing the stories of the impacts, um, that we are sharing um, even the promising practices that might be happening, you know, here in Atlanta or in other places across the country that, you know, will be sort of, you know, part, will be kind of part of the guiding light to help us um, to adequately you know, address this, this crisis, you know, if there's bold action to act, you know, really at every level, um, then we can get it done. When you think about all the different ways people can get involved and the different steps of action people can take, what would you advise listeners to do if they wanted to help address the climate crisis? Wow, that's a very big question. Um, but I guess, I guess what I could say is, you know, I, I think there is a lot of power in 
um, being engaged locally, you know, in local communities, um, linking up with environmental, uh, environmental justice, you know, climate justice and conservation organizations that are taking actions to address uh, the climate crisis is really important. Um, when you think about the context of the, the various types of organizations that do this type of work, especially, um, you know, from a nonprofit or a community-based standpoint, um, you know, people in these organizations are working on policy issues. Um, they're working on research initiatives, even in some cases, research initiatives that can um, engage, you know, everyday ordinary citizens who, you know, may not be scientists, but they can still you know, get engaged in, in work to, um, in some cases, we're talking about, you know, collecting data that we, you know, need to analyze and then use to advance evidence-based solutions um, that can be implemented at the, at the local level. Uh, in some cases, we're talking about, you know, policy measures that, um, you know, needs to be implemented, you know, whether we're talking about locally at the state level, you know, or at the national level, there are roles um, for people to, um, um, you know, to be activists on those issues. They're also just, you know, just the opportunity for people to be aware of what those issues are and to, you know, make calls to, you know, your congressman or your senator um, to make sure that he or she is, you know, voting um, in a way that protects the interest of our local communities. Um, so those are, you know, some of the ways that you can get involved. There are some, you know, community-based and nonprofit organizations that are doing hands-on, you know, work, you know, on the ground, kind of looking at the wide range of, you know, climate change impacts, you know, from urban flooding to, um, you know, food insecurity to, you know, energy poverty. Um, so, you know, kind of find your issue. And there's probably a group that is working on that issue um, locally um, that would have some opportunities, you know, for students, members, other members of our community to engage. We do have a lot of listeners in the podcast who are in Atlanta or um, in the similar region. So is there anything for people who are involved or interested in getting involved with your work at the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance or other nonprofits um, in the area? Is there anything that they can do to get involved with those organizations or that kind of work in general? I think there are a number of opportunities to, to get engaged in, you know, local groups or, you know, groups like these groups and other uh, in other locales. Um, so to talk about the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance specifically, um, you know, as a community-based organization that works on the west side of Atlanta, um, we do a number of things that, you know, address, you know, climate change impacts. Uh, one, we help to manage urban forest in the city of Atlanta and try to raise awareness about the benefits of those urban forests to um, not only environmental quality, but our health and quality of life. And so we engage students and, you know, other communities community members in hands-on, you know, restoration projects. Um, you can check out our website, www.wawa, that's W-A-W-A hyphen online, O-N-L-I-N-E dot org. Um, and you'll see a listing or a way that you can sign up for upcoming service projects, um, you know, where you can, um, you know, dig in the dirt, um, you know, really um, make some things happen on the local landscape. Um, and, you know, I, I will say that in the context of COVID, uh, the numbers that we can accommodate sometimes are um, more limited than they, you know, have uh, have been 
happened in the past, but we still are you know, looking uh, for people to help us um, with the management of some critical urban forest lands in Southwest Atlanta. We also engage in a lot of work around watershed restoration. Um, a piece of that deals with water quality monitoring. Um, we have an event coming up November the 20th. It's, it hasn't gone live on our website yet, but if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you will get notifications as soon as um, the information hits. We do something every year called the West Side uh, River Rendezvous. Um, usually we have... Um, 60 to 100 uh, volunteer community scientists who come um, come together and take water quality samples um, at about 60 different locations um, in the Proctor, Utoy, and Sandy Creek watersheds in West Atlanta. And this kind of happens in a one-day sort of setting. Um, so we send teams out. Last year, we kind of did our first drive-by, you know, socially distanced. So you came with your own pod of family members or, you know, maybe even friends who you were spending time with. And we didn't have a lot of mixing and mingling with, you know, others who were kind of outside of that pod. Um, but we, you know, had a nice socially distanced way for people to still go out, um, collect that water quality data, um, and to help us to get sort of a one-day snapshot of what's going on um, with our local, um, in our local creeks and streams, and that ultimately feeds into our overall efforts um, to restore our local watersheds, um, but to also address, you know, some of the critical infrastructure needs that we have, you know, in the city. And in some cases, you know, this infrastructure, when it is not adequate, you know, things like stormwater infrastructure, for instance, when it when it's not adequate, um, when we have more intense, you know, rain events, um, then we have flooding, you know, of local communities. Um, and that flooding, you know, often might have, might be laced with, you know, things like raw untreated sewage. And so these are the types of, you know, we're trying to understand, you know, what the contamination looks like um, in those water bodies. And it all, it's all kind of tied together. So those are a couple of opportunities with West Atlanta Watershed Alliance coming up um, to engage. And maybe one more thing that I'll mention um, is that um, Wawa has been engaged with Spelman College, Georgia Tech, um, the city of Atlanta, um, and others to um, advance um, a project called Urban Heat ATL, in which we've been working with local students and community members to help map um, uh, urban uh, heat islands across Atlanta. Um, we also uh, have been engaged with the Atlanta Heat Watch campaign led by Spelman College, um, which was a one-day um, sort of data collection activity um, funded by NOAA um, to also map urban heat islands, um, but using um, temperature sensors that are mounted to cars and vehicles. Um, in the Urban Heat ATL project, we've been working since March um, and um, outfitting, you know, students and community members with handheld temperature sensors. Um, and through both projects, we're, you know, trying to get a better sense of the fine-grained, you know, community-level data around temperature that will help us um, to, you know, understand which communities might be most vulnerable to extreme heat in the city, um, but then also um, to help us to, um, to develop some policy and practice recommendations for our city, um, county government, and other local entities uh, who can help us to address this, this crisis here in the city. You know, we hear a lot about doomsday scenarios and how things can go really wrong in the climate crisis. If you were to imagine us solving it and fixing it, 
what would that world look like? Wow, such a great question. Um, if we, and I believe that we can solve the climate crisis, um, then I think it it would um, look like a um, a planet um, that wasn't warming as much. I think we would see a reduction in some of the local impacts that we're seeing in terms of you know flooding. Uh, in some parts of the the country, we're you know dealing with extreme heat. We're dealing with drought in some places. Uh, in other places, you know, massive forest fires. Um, and while some of these things, um, you know, have um, their genesis in natural processes, we know that um, our increased um, you know um, use of um, or, or increased production of greenhouse gases. Um, you know, in our atmosphere um, has, you know, really exacerbated, you know, um, what what can can occur naturally. And so, you know, if we're addressing the climate crisis, I think that we're also, you know, really addressing the root causes. Uh, we are um, addressing, you know, um, kind of our over-dependence on fossil fuels. We are addressing racist structures um, and policies that make certain communities more vulnerable. And we're making sure that as we're implementing the solutions that those communities who've been most impacted negatively are equitably um, on the receiving end you know, of those benefits. Um, and so we're gonna see better health we're not going to see the same, you know, gaps in life expectancy. We're not going to see the same health disparities impacting, you know, certain populations, you know, communities of color and low income populations. Uh, we're, we're talking about sort of the global South not bearing the brunt, you know, of climate change impacts as well. Um, but we're seeing, you know, something that is going to be, um, you know, human centered in terms of, um you know, when, when I think about, you know, we think about the sustainable development goals, there are also these, um, the um, the millennial, you know, goals, you know, for human development. Um, so we're seeing, you know, positive changes in terms of, you know, inequality, in terms of poverty, uh, in terms of um, exposure to, you know, environmental toxicants and pollution. You know, all of those things would be so remarkably different. Um, we'd have, you know, really a planet that's cleaner, greener, healthier, uh, and much more sustainable. Um, and I think we can do it. So thank you for this opportunity to share with you today. Um, I hope that uh, your listeners uh, are figuring out the ways that they can get involved to be a part of the solutions process. As Dr. Osborne Jelks explained, the international negotiations at COP26 can be used as a guide and a catalyst for community-level action, and vice versa. Both approaches depend on the other to make more informed and impactful decisions. While the link between a conference room in Glasgow and a creek in Atlanta may seem elusive, Dr. Osborne Jelks shows us that there's one to be found, and real progress achieved when we do. You can find further information on Nataki Osborne Jelks and the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance in our show notes, as well as resources to learn more about COP26. This week's episode was reported by Lauren Ballatin and Hallie Bradshaw and produced by Tyler Stern. The music was provided by Zola Bergerschmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern.
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will be discussing corporate sustainability and the role businesses play in mitigating climate change.